0: Thank you, Z. So, um, this evening, of course, is the Super Bowl party. Uh, That is going to be directly after the service. Uh, Kids, you are now dismissed. The kiefers are in the back, uh, Josh and Bethany, so you kids can go ahead and follow them out. See you later. So the plan then, of course, will be directly after the conclusion of our service. Um, We'll be in here watching the game on the big screen. Uh, Food will be out in the lobby. Um, If you um, plan on spilling things, thank you for (laughs) cleaning those I actually have that in my notes, and I didn't mean to call you up. Yeah, but it was a demonstration. Thank you, Jess, for that demonstration. Yes, the kids, they are the worst. Uh, Why do we have them? Um, So, that will be directly after the service. Uh, You should have been handed a a game here. Uh, This just has to be filled out before the uh, kickoff, but not during my sermon. So, uh, we have much to cover and uh, not a whole lot of time to do it. So, let's uh, jump right in. We are now midway through the fifth chapter of James. We're nearly finished with the book of James. And we're, we're coming to a close in this book here in the next couple of weeks. And because of the time constraints on today, I don't have time to give you a synopsis of all that we've covered so far. I'll, I'll do that in the coming weeks. But what we've seen is that James has been incredibly practical in his approach, that he has given a lot of real, applicable commands for how we should live as believers, but especially how we should live when we are hurting, when we're suffering. Remember that James is written to an audience made up of people whose lives had been totally changed by persecution. These are people that have lost their homes, they've lost their livelihoods, they've lost loved ones, many other things, simply because they were Christians. And so James, filled with grace, addresses over and over and over in this book how to live in light of suffering. And so today and next week, we'll look at his final two exhortations as it pertains to suffering. But really, this week is his closing statement. This passage here is really his closing argument in regards to suffering. So, we'll be in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Normally, I stand up here and tell some kind of a story to illustrate the points that are to come. Typically, that story is from someone else's life or from a work of fiction, or a movie, or or something similar. Today, I will share a story from my own life, a story of suffering, a story of loss, a story of death, a story of eternal hope in the truth of the gospel, a story of joy. Those of you who have known me for a while have heard me tell the story of my father's sudden passing in an accident seven years ago. But this is not that story. This is a story that is much more recent. In fact, it's only been about 48 hours. The truth is, there hasn't been a whole lot of time for me to fully process, so. Bear with me if some of this comes out uh, a bit jumbled. Um, A few weeks ago, my wife took a pregnancy test. And the test showed the faintest line you have ever seen in your entire life. And as they say, a line is a line. Allison said, I think we're, we're pregnant. I was not convinced. To me, it looks kind of like just a shadow or an indentation or is that really even there? So, my position was, I don't think she's pregnant. Well, later that day, uh, she began her cycle, and so I took that to mean, all right, there's confirmation she is actually not pregnant. Now, Allison still had her doubts. What we thought was her cycle lasted for about two weeks, and so we knew that something abnormal was happening. I, being the leader of the family, took the position of being scared and nervous. She, being the stronger of the two of us, took the position of joy. She said, I'm not going to be stressed and worried. I'm not going to allow myself to be anxious. I am going to be happy. For whatever's going on with this child, it deserves to have a happy mommy. And so, I'm going to choose Joy. Last Sunday, after we got home from church, she took another pregnancy test. And this time, it was a very, very obvious line. I mean, no mistaking, absolutely no denying, she is pregnant. And At that point, I allowed myself to not be so worried and actually be excited. So the following day, she went to go get some blood work done to confirm, and they told her to come back for a second round of blood work on Wednesday, but then Antarctica came to visit South Bend, and she wasn't able to go until Thursday. So that second round of blood work confirmed that she was still progressing, which was a tremendous relief because of what had happened the previous weeks, we had feared a miscarriage. But this second round of blood work showed that um, the pregnancy is progressing, healthy. So we were very relieved. An ultrasound scheduled for February the 7th. So at that point, we began to plan how we were going to tell our loved ones. Uh, Perhaps Valentine's Day. But this Thursday night, Allison began to experience abdominal pain. By Friday morning, her pain was so severe that she couldn't take it any longer. And so we dropped the kids off at a friend's house, and I took her to the emergency room. First, there was another blood test, then a urine test. Both of those showed no signs of concern, and I began to hope that maybe she was experiencing this pain from all the broccoli she had eaten when she asked me to order $41 of Chinese food on Friday night. We were then scheduled for an ultrasound. And the ultrasound confirmed what had originally been Allison's greatest fear, an ectopic pregnancy. What that means is that the baby, although healthy and growing, was healthy and growing in the wrong place. Rather than implanting in the uterus, the placenta had implanted in the fallopian tube, which carries eggs from the ovaries to the uterus. With that particular diagnosis, there is nothing that can be done to save the child. If left to continue to grow, the child will grow too large for the fallopian tube, causing the tube to rupture, killing the child immediately and putting the mother at great risk as well. And so the only option at that point is to medically induce a miscarriage. Obviously, Allison and I were heartbroken to receive that news. At that moment, our child was healthy, Growing, developing, about nine weeks old, blissfully unaware that he or she had set up its home in the wrong address, barely old enough to know life, and now being faced with knowing death. And so the doctor informed us that Allison would be receiving an injection to using the cold medical terminology, terminate the pregnancy. The doctor closed the door and we began to cry. Not exactly how we hoped to spend a Friday night. But after a few moments, I looked at Allison and I said, hey, listen, we only have a short time to be parents to this little. So... Let's make the most of it. So I placed my hand on her stomach and I I began to talk to the baby, really for the first time. I said, Little, we're Notre Dame fans, so let's teach you the Notre Dame fight song. I talked about their older brother, Eli, and how he would have loved to sing songs and take care of him or her. I talked about Her older sister, Marisol, and how she would have loved to terrorize him or her. I read the final story in the Jesus Storybook Bible, which talks about heaven. I told stupid dad jokes. I looked at Allison and I said to her, listen, God has blessed us with a tremendous gift. See, none of our kids belong to us. They are not ours, they belong to him. We are called to be stewards, God's representatives who raise them in the right way. This particular little will be born straight into heaven, where they will experience the fullness of joy for eternity. They will never know the pain of this world. They will only know joy. And God chose us to be the ones to begin that eternal life. Though we will not meet this little on earth, we will spend eternity with our little in heaven. In that moment, through my tears... I prayed, and I asked God to help us hold on to joy in the midst of our pain, that he would be the source of our joy. And right there in the middle of my prayer, I stopped, and I said, Joy. Seems like a pretty good thing to call our little And so I placed my hand on Allison's stomach, and I whispered, Your name is Joy. Hopefully you're a girl, so it won't be weird. After a while, the doctor came in to administer the injection. After she left... After she left, I spoke to the baby one last time. And I said, Joy, some medicine is on its way. Don't fight it. It's going to take you home. When you wake up, you will be home. And your Heavenly Father will be there waiting for you. And... There's going to be a guy there who looks exactly like me waiting to hold you, who's going to be really excited that he gets to be a grandpa there since he never got to be one here. He'll probably hold you the entire time until we get there. We'll be there soon. Daddy loves you, joy. Now, I want to be very clear with you why I am sharing this intensely personal story. It is not so that you can feel sorry for us, nor is it so that you can venerate us or put us on a pedestal. The reason why I am sharing this story with you today is so that you can understand why the hope of the gospel is so important. If there's one thing that I have learned from my suffering, it is that suffering is not about me. Over the years, for whatever reason, my family has been entrusted by God with the gift Of suffering. For the simple reason that through our suffering and through the comfort that we receive from God, we might share that comfort with others who suffer. I'm telling you the story of joy so that I can tell you the greater story of the greatest joy. That not even the death of a father. Or the death of a child can shake. I'm telling you this story because all of us suffer in various ways. Maybe even right now you are suffering. Maybe right now you are experiencing some form of deep pain. And if you aren't now, I can promise you that at some point you will be. And you need something to hold on tightly to. You need something that will hold even tighter to you. Something that will not let you go. And like that little bundle of joy, I have been entrusted with the message of hope. And I must steward it well. What we're going to see today in the book of James are three things. In the midst of our suffering, we must be patient, we must be grounded, and we must be truthful. So turning your Bibles to James chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So if you are taking notes, here is point number one. In our suffering, we are called to be doubly patient. In our suffering, we're called to be doubly patient. If you remember, the book of James starts off with this call to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. He teaches that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And that idea of steadfastness is something we'll revisit. Here, James comes full circle here at the end of the book, speaking again about suffering and how, in the midst of that suffering, we must be patient. He says in verse seven, be patient. The farmer is patient. Verse eight, you also be patient. Verse 10, the prophets are an example of patience. And there, in in verse 10, where it says, steadfast, that is, as we will see later on, another word that means patient. In the midst of our suffering, when things go wrong, our first instinct is to question God. We wonder if He is even aware of our suffering. We wonder why. He has allowed our suffering. We, we wonder if he's going to do anything about it. Because in the midst of those moments, according to what our eyes are seeing, it's easy to think that God is not doing anything. Seven years ago, I stood on the rocks by the ocean, asking God to save my father's life. And he did not. 48 hours ago, I sat in a hospital and begged God for the pregnancy to not be ectopic. But it was. And it's easy in those moments to say, God is not there. And even if he is, he clearly doesn't know what he's doing. He's not answering my prayer. The suffering is not going away. And in response to that line of thinking, James very gently tells us, "Do not be short-sighted. Be patient." Now it would be a bit of oversimplification to say that what James is saying is, "Wait." Though it is true that waiting is a part of the process, there's quite a bit more involved. You see, in the New Testament, there are two words. Two Greek words that are used for patience. The word hupomone and the word macrothumia. Both hupomone and macrothumia are used in this passage. Macrothumia is used in verses 7, 8, and 10, and it's where we see the word patient. Each place in your text that you see the word patient, that is the Greek word macrothumia. But then in verse 11 where it says steadfast, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, that particular word is the word hupomone. And it is not at all by accident that James uses both of these words because what he is doing is he is giving us two sides of a coin. He's giving us a nuanced, fuller idea of the word patience. Macrothumia literally means long-suffering. It is the opposite of being short-tempered. We, we understand the idea of someone who's short-tempered. They have a very short fuse. But we don't have in English a word that means long-fused. We say short-fused and we say short-tempered, but we don't have a term that we use that says long-tempered. This word is the word for long-tempered. The Hebrew equivalent of this word means long of nose, which sounds like Pinocchio, but it doesn't have anything to do with dishonesty. It calls to mind the image of how someone breathes when they're angry or upset, with clenched fists and breathing quickly through the nose, snorting like a bull. Macrothumia refers to the opposite response. Because what it is talking about is being controlled in temperament. Calmly breathing. Four times, James says to us, be macrothumia. Then, in verse 11, he follows that up by saying, we consider blessed those who hupomone. Hupomone means to endure. It is defined as the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty, patience, endurance, fortitude, steadfastness, and perseverance. It is the act of staying patient and waiting for someone or something. Elsewhere, it's defined as the characteristic of a person who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to, loyalty to faith and piety, even by the greatest trials and sufferings. It is to abide peacefully underneath trial. So, what does that mean for us? What it means is that these two words, macrothumia and hupomone, taken together refer to the inwardly held and the outwardly expressed forms of patience. The inwardly held and the outwardly expressed forms of patience. Hupomone is what you hold on to internally in your spirit. Hupomone is the state of heart where you are white-knuckling the gospel, holding tight, not letting go. Hupomone is that internal dialogue with God in which you acknowledge the pain, but you trust nonetheless. And then, macrothumia is your outward display of that hope toward others. It is the act of showing love in the midst of brokenness. Knowing that your suffering... And how you respond to your suffering will communicate the truth of the gospel to the people that are watching you suffer. To sum it up, James is addressing people who are enduring trials, who are facing the brokenness of sin, the brokenness of creation, and he is exhorting them to do two things to hold on tightly to the eternal hope of the gospel and to use that pain to show others the reality of hope. So how on earth do you actually do that? In order to do that, we need to realize and remember that this is not our home. We are not home yet. This 70 years of life is a temporary blip on the radar of eternity. And we need to know that God's chief concern is not to make our lives comfortable for 70 years on this earth. His priority is to bring us into eternal joy with Him. James admonishes us not to be short-sighted, which is exactly what we are most of the time. When God doesn't answer our prayer to make things easier right now, we immediately conclude that he's not doing his job. We assume that it is God's job to give us an easy, comfortable, pain-free life. But that is not at all his chief concern. His chief concern is eternity. And he cares far more about the quality of your eternity than he does this short vapor of earthly life. Imagine that you are going on a year-long, all-expense-paid vacation at an all-inclusive resort in the Bahamas. Who wouldn't want that? All right? You have been gifted a year-long, all-expenses-paid, all-inclusive resort vacation. Sounds wonderful, especially in the midst of this cold weather. Now, imagine that when you arrive at the resort, you're told by the person at the front desk that you've been given a free upgrade to the executive penthouse, You were being given a regular room, now you're being given an upgrade to the executive penthouse. Your room is being prepared, so you'll need to wait for a few minutes in the lobby until the room is ready. And once the room is ready, you'll be escorted to the ultimate feast. What would your response be in that moment? My response would be, all right, executive penthouse, like the sound of that cool I'll hang out here for a little bit take in the sights after all from the lobby you can see the ocean you can see the mountains I mean the architecture at this resort is beautiful I'll take some pictures I'll I'll update my Facebook status so that uh, all my jealous friends who are back home can see that I've arrived safely and that I'm about to be escorted into this palace that I'll get to call my own for the next year. In that moment, any of us would be over the moon. But imagine if you were to respond differently. Imagine you sit down in the lobby, and you relax for a moment, but then you begin to complain. This lobby doesn't have a bed. Where am I supposed to relax? There's a bathroom in the lobby, but but i got to share that with other people. It's a public bathroom. What kind of resort doesn't have a private bathroom in the lobby for their executive guests? Furthermore, you begin to look around and you see that there's no closet to unpack your things. So, seeing all these things wrong with the lobby, you begin to get angry. You are furious at the lack of customer service in this dump. You ask for a manager to be sent right away. When he gets there, you angrily begin to spew your complaints and demand that this lobby be made more comfortable. What kind of manager are you anyway, having a dumpy lobby like this? After calmly listening to your complaining, the manager says, "'Sir, there's no need to fret.'" Soon you'll be escorted to your room and you'll experience all that this resort has to offer. You may like to know that I have paid for your executive upgrade out of my own pocket. Now this may seem like a silly analogy. After all, literally no one except for the most spoiled brat in the history of the world would be complaining in that scenario. Every single one of us would be delighted but is that not how we so often come to God in prayer? We come to God in prayer confused as to why this earth is not more comfortable. Why the lobby that we're waiting in for the executive suite doesn't have the things that we expect it to have. And his response to us is, you are not in the executive suite yet. this sweet that I have paid for with my own blood. If any of us were in God's shoes hearing the complaining, we'd probably respond the same way that I typically respond when my children are asking me for something over and over and over and over, that I'm in the middle of preparing already. I look at them and I scream, be patient, all right? But instead... God, through James, with such gentle grace, says, Be patient, beloved brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. It will be here soon. Very soon you will have fullness of joy. Until then, hold on to the hope that I give you and share that hope with everyone else. Be patient with me in your heart and show others what that patience looks like. Point number two. You'll never make it unless you're grounded. I don't mean grounded in the sense that you have your privileges taken away. I mean firm to the ground. Look it with me at verse eight. He says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. James tells us that in order for us to be patient, we must establish our hearts. So what does that mean? I don't ever want to give the impression that having patience in the midst of suffering is by any means easy. It is one of the hardest things to do. Pain, when not properly dealt with, has the potential to destroy us. Countless people have had their faith or their potential for faith shipwrecked because of personally experiencing or closely witnessing great pain. But when properly understood, pain can also be a gift that is used to strengthen us. The word here for established is the Greek word sterizo. It's where we get the English word steroids. This word means to build buttresses in order to make something firm and unmovable. Buttresses are these large projecting supports for walls that support and reinforce the strength of the wall. If you see pictures of many middle-aged cathedrals or most of the buildings in Hogwarts, you'll see buttresses supporting the walls. These, these buttresses ensure that the wall is nearly impossible to breach, nearly impossible to break down. It's one of the reasons that these buildings have lasted for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years through wars, through storms, through centuries of wear and tear. Pain threatens to breach the walls of our hearts. It threatens to tear us down, to make us lose the valuable hope held within And knowing this, James doesn't simply tell us to just be patient and wait. He tells us to build these buttresses through the power of the gospel, which will support our hearts to keep them from crumbling. And one of the key buttresses the gospel offers is this long-range view rather than a short-range despair. And three examples of this type of patience are provided in the passage. The first is farming. Look at verse 7. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Farming is something I would never want to do. Not for me. I'm more of a work inside kind of guy. As a Hispanic, I have done my fair share of lawn work. I am done with that if it is up to me. Farming is incredibly hard labor for ungodly amounts of time. It usually begins before the sun comes up. Typically, doesn't end until the sun goes down. Lots of manual labor. But above all, it involves a requirement to be committed to the long game Farming is not quick. It's not sudden. First, the ground must be properly tended. Then seeds must be planted. Then fields have to be watered. And here, James points to the ancient agricultural schedule where farmers had to wait for the early season rains, then wait again for the late season rains, and then hopefully later on there would be a harvest. If not the farmer goes hungry. It takes a tremendous amount of faith. After a long year of tending their crops, finally there is a harvest to make it all worth it. The second example he gives is that of the prophets. Read in verse 10, he says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord he notes both the suffering and the patience of these prophets of the Old Testament. These guys were given a mission and a message by God. They were asked to be a mouthpiece for truth. But many, if not most, of these men and women experienced a tremendous amount of suffering before any of their prophecies came true. Almost all of them were ostracized, treated poorly by the people who expected microwave instant results. A number of them were put to death because the people didn't like hearing what they had to say. And for many of them, their prophecies didn't come to pass until hundreds of years after they died. They ministered with this ever forward looking approach, long beyond the scope of their lifetime. In the midst of their waiting, In the midst of their labor, in the midst of their hardship and toil, what buttresses the faith of the patience of the farmer and the prophet is long-term hope. Eventually, the harvest will come. Eventually, there will be fruit. Eventually, it will all be worth it. I won't have to wait in this lobby forever. And the last example that James gives is even more tangible. In verse 11, he reminds us of the story of Job. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Those familiar with the story of Job will remember that Job was a good. Faithful, devoted follower of God. But in an instant, he lost everything. His livelihood was stolen. His possessions taken. His house collapsed. And worst of all, he lost his children. In the scope of just a moment, Job went from being wealthy and having a big family to having Nothing. And what was Job's response? Job one twenty one he says Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job was established. He was buttressed. He was built up and supported by immovable pillars. He was like a boulder in the ocean. No matter how fierce the tide, no matter how wild and strong the waves that crash against it, the rock won't move. The only way for us to make it when we suffer is to ask God to establish our hearts before we suffer, to prepare us with a long-range viewpoint, to keep ever in front of us the eternal hope of the gospel that because of Jesus Christ, one day we will hear the Father say, behold, I am making all things new. Because suffering is, is a true test of what we're made of. Suffering will take off the masks that we so often put on and reveal who we really are. Your final point, point three. Suffering will squeeze the truth out of us. There have been a number of times in the book of James where James seems to say incredibly random things that don't follow any line of thought, places where he'll seem to drop something in the middle of a series of commands that doesn't have anything to do with what he's talking about. This passage is no different. Right in the middle of these verses, talking about patience and suffering and steadfastness, he randomly drops verses 9 and 12. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. What is going on here? Why does he seem to take this detour about making promises and grumbling against others. Well, as we saw in the other very seemingly random passages in this book, it's not actually random at all. What James is pointing out is that suffering removes the Instagram filter that we put over our lives. As we suffer, we lose pretense. We lose facades. When we suffer, we begin to say what we really mean. First, he talks about grumbling, specifically grumbling against other people. And he brings this up because oftentimes when we suffer, we put the blame on other people for that suffering. If my parents hadn't raised me this way, this wouldn't happen. If my spouse wasn't so negative, I would be happy. If my boss wasn't such a jerk, my life wouldn't be so hard. If the government would just change this, if my wife would just be that, if my church would just do this, if people would just leave me alone, I'd be a whole lot better off. But James says that when we pass judgment on others... We will receive that judgment back on ourselves. He says we had better not make an expectation of perfection our standard, because if we do, we are going to fail that test miserably. And then in the last verse, he talks about swearing. Now, this passage, despite being taken out of context to mean it before, is not about saying bad words nor is this a command that we shouldn't do things like put our hand on a Bible and go under oath. James is not making some sort of legal proclamation here. Here's what he's addressing and why. First, we have to understand that one of the things going on at this time was that the Pharisees and the people who followed the Pharisees were notorious for being duplicitous, two-faced, They knew that to speak an oath in God's name would be binding. So they came up with ways to make oaths that they could get out of. Jesus referenced this very thing in a passage known as the seven woes in Matthew chapter 23. Here he chastises the Pharisees and he points out that they've got this system of swearing where they taught that if a person swears by the temple they could break that promise and be okay. But if they swear by the gold in the temple, I'm bound by that oath. Or they said, if I swear by the altar, it means nothing. But if I swear by the offering on the altar, I have to keep the promise. So what they are doing is they're being intentionally deceptive. They are making promises that they cannot keep while still having this facade of being righteous. I'm going to swear an oath that makes me look righteous that I know very well I'm just going to sneak my way out of. Jesus addressed that in the Sermon on the Mount as well. And in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he uses the same words that his little brother will use here. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. So what does that have to do with suffering? Well, when you suffer, it's pretty easy to make promises that you can't keep. God, if you'll just take this suffering away, I promise I'll serve you. God, if you answer this prayer, I'll give you whatever you ask. Please just answer this one request and I'll believe in you. I'll never waver in my faith again. Last week, Eli got a little case of the stomach bug and spent nearly an entire night throwing up. I left for work the next day, and he was still sick, and Allison calls me laughing, and I'm like, what's so funny? And she goes, you should have heard our 7-year-old son in the bathroom. I'm like, what did he say? She goes, I'm in the hallway, I can hear him throwing up, and I walk in, and I look around the corner, and he's doubled over the toilet, screaming, God, if you just make it stop, I promise I'll love you. (laughs) Bargaining with God at seven years old. The thing is, that's a promise that you can't keep. That is swearing by heaven or earth, And we're commanded not to do that. Instead, in the midst of our suffering, God asks us, Will you still trust me? Will you still serve me? Will you still believe in me? And the answer is a very simple yes or no. Suffering will squeeze the truth out of us, revealing whether we serve God for his blessings or for his presence, whether we are spiritual gold diggers who only want his money or spiritual lovers who love him for who he is and what he has done. Because when the sun is shining and the sky is bright and all is going well, it is easy to say, I believe in you, God. But can you still say it and mean it when the world turns upside down? And the answer to prayer is not the one you wanted? And the result is not what you hoped? And the pregnancy is a topic. In that moment, can you still choose joy? The only way to choose joy is to fix our eyes on Jesus. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, people are watching, people are watching us, so we macrothumia, We're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run with endurance, with hoopamone. Same word, same word there in Hebrews. With deep-seated patience and hope, abiding in suffering in Peace. He says, let us run with Hupamone the race set out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, the joy set before him, not the ease set before him, not the painlessness set before him. As a matter of fact, he begged his father in the garden, if there be any way that this cup can pass from me, let it be but not my will, Lord, yours be done. And in that moment, he sweat blood because of the pain that he experienced, but for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That, that is what gives us hope the gospel truth that Jesus died and rose again to defeat our greatest enemy, death. And we are promised that one day even death itself will die, that the grim reaper will one day reap everything that he sowed. And so we cry out with passion as the, the apostle Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Choose joy. As Allison and I waited in the hospital room the other day, praying. Thinking, talking to joy, Allison said, we need to take a family photo. Here is that photo. Moments after taking this photo, the doctor came in to bring the injection. But there will come a day when we will see that child's face or we can take this picture a second time and nothing will be missing. No death will be impending. Nothing will await us except joy, joy. Joy everlasting. Unspeakable, unshakable, unending joy. Is that what you are holding on to? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for joy. I thank you that this very moment that child is in your arms experiencing the fullness of joy and that that very same joy is offered to us through the hope of Jesus Christ I thank you that you are a God that would not hold back your own child from me. How could I hold back my child from you? God, I pray for every person who is here, for every person who is listening online. God, I pray for hope Lord, I pray that if there be any who have never experienced the fullness of that hope, who've never come to a place where they have said, I trust you with everything. I choose to see beyond the short sight and I choose to see what you have in store. I choose to place my hope and faith in Jesus Christ. Let tonight be the night that they make that decision. That for every one of us, Lord, as we experience suffering and pain, you would be our hope and our joy, our unmoving rock. A rock that will not move. God, in the next few moments, as we sing these words to you, let it be out of hearts responding to your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.